0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles if you would and turn to Luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50 is our passage this today. Today, we are going to tackle a big passage. It's going to be a big bite. We've got a lot to chew on this morning. Luke chapter 7, as we talk about the forgiveness that produces love. Forgiveness that produces love. <coughs> Let me ask you a question as you're turning there. What have you found to be the best tool or strategy strategy in evangelizing? What, what is the best method? What, is it uh, you know, a, a track? Is it just going through like the Romans Road? Uh, or, or is it just engaging people at the cost? What is your best tool or the best way that you found... To evangelize. As Christians and lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God, you and I have been commissioned to make disciples. That's what we are called to do is to make disciples. And we do this by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That God has sent Jesus to provide all that God requires that for, for, for those things that pertain to life and godliness. We've just been singing about that this morning, praying about that, reading through scripture. In today's passage, Luke recounts one evangelistic method of Jesus while he attends a banquet at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. Now things seem to be going well as we read this narrative. Things seem to be going uh, very well when all of a sudden an awkward interruption leads Jesus to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the gospel, to Simon, his host, and to those that are gathered around. Now this morning we're going to take a different approach to our text as as how I normally do it. We're going to read through the narrative together. Uh, silently as I do it out loud while stopping and consider what the Holy Spirit wants to understand about this passage. And again, I I know I do it every week, but I encourage you, please bring a Bible with you. If you need one, please let me know. I'd love to give you a copy of God's word. Uh, Bring something to take notes. We do have some uh, papers on the back that said just message notes. Very easy and a pen. Uh, uh, Write in your Bible. This is something that's very important for us to do as we go through there. Uh, But first, let's pray. Father, we just come before you. And as we open up your word, this is more than just the best-selling book of all time. It's more than just two testaments put together for us that we say is here's our guidebook. Here's our rule book. Now, this is the revelation, uh, your revelation to us to reveal all things that we are to know and to understand. And those things in which one day we'll be judged for. So let us open it, uh, not haphazardly or without much thought, but let us open it with love and with the desire to learn, with a, with a desire to see what you have given to us. It is your love letter to us in that regard, our valentine. But Lord, I pray that we would understand and Lord, that we may glorify you as we pay attention. Lord, uh, ease the disruptions and Father, may we then respond to the Holy Spirit's work in our heart. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are, Luke chapter 7. Let's go to verse 36 as we follow along in Luke's narrative. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's home, brought an alabaster flask of anointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with anointment. Now we saw last week in in Luke chapter 7 verse 34 that one of the accusations against Jesus by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees and others, was was that Jesus was considered a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, the one who proclaimed to be Messiah, he would stoop so low to go and eat and drink with other people. He, he, didn't, he didn't mind going to a party, to, to a group of friends or a group of strangers and getting to know them over breaking a bread. So what is ironic here is that Luke records that a Pharisee then invites Jesus to his house for banquet. Proving that he was indeed a friend of sinners, Jesus accepted the social hospitality of this Pharisee, most likely as his guest of honor. So Jesus here is reclining at the table, enjoying some food, some conversation, the hospitality of the host, getting to know those that are around him, the leaders probably of that village, that city, when all of a sudden the party is interrupted by a very awkward moment that boggles their minds and leads the host to assume the worst of the woman and also of Jesus. In verse 37, Luke introduces the arrival of a woman, of the woman that approaches Jesus during the dinner. He, he uses the word behold, behold a woman. That's to depict her appearance as sudden, surprising, and unexpected. How, how did this woman get in here? What, what is she doing here? She's not on the guest list. Luke describes her as a woman of the city. I don't know if you saw that, a woman of the city. Depicting her as someone that was known by the community. So they recognized who she was. She was known by them, but why is she here? What is her purpose? How does she get in? And identifies her also as a sinner. Now, this is Luke's words. Luke used this word to describe her as a culturally as it was culturally used at that time by the religious leaders. A sinner is one who's considered immoral and a social outcast with a reputation for gross immorality. Putting these two things together, a woman of the city and and that she was a sinner, she most likely was a prostitute. And as we see, a very profitable one. Understand what is happening here as you and I are, are trying to put this picture of this social scene in our mind. It's helpful to know that in those days, as we've said before, that the table that they are setting at, it would be like a U-shaped. And instead of eating with their feet underneath the table in front of them as you and I do, they would recline at the table. So I'm going to kind of do that for you. They would kind of recline on their right, right and left and their feet would then lay behind them. That's that's how they would eat in those days. So it's, it's not uncommon to see that the feet is behind them. It's helpful to know also that in those days, that in these types of banquets, they served as not just a place to eat, but also as a place to gather news, especially from a traveling preacher or a a traveling teacher. They would want to know what's going on in your travels. They didn't have Western Union. There's no social media, no, no TV, nothing. They don't know what's going on other than just by word of mouth. It was also common for the host to inquire of his guest about their philosophy and teaching. So for them, the whole setting served not as a way just to get a meal, but it actually served as their entertainment. That's how they would entertain themselves. Not only for those invited, what's helpful to understand, it's not just those who are invited. Because of the way it was set up and what it was designed to do, it was also available for the other residents of the town and villages. It was very common for those that were uninvited, like this woman of the city, to attend while standing either outside by the windows looking in or in the, or standing in the shadows of the walls. Now that, that's kind of weird. I don't know if you've ever invited someone else to dinner, but then invited everyone else just to come and just watch you eat. But this is the common practice at that time. Many times the poor would come, waiting to grab any leftovers or scrapes or scraps that they could gather after the meal. And this answers the question of why she was there and why was she behind Jesus and how did she get in? Theologian Walter Liefeld notes that the woman took advantage, (coughs) excuse me, of the social custom that permitted needy people to visit such a banquet to receive some of the leftovers. So she snuck in with the crowd. And what she does is she sees where Jesus is and she she puts herself right behind where her his feet would be right in front of her. Probably not a good place to be in those days. As they were wearing sandals and everywhere they're walking, there's no showers, there's no foot baths. And so their feet, as you can imagine, is a place that they're going to put behind them while they're eating. That was one reason they ate in such a way. To the question of why, though, she went in, she didn't need the food. She was a wealthy woman. As we see, she has an alabaster of perfume that was expensive. But it was to show appreciation to Jesus through the physical act of anointing him. This was something that was done in those days. Someone they, that was respected. Someone that they love. You and I, we, we make statues of people. We may come and we make memorial dinners. We make paintings of them and so on. They would come and they would anoint them with some perfume or some anointing oil to show their appreciation. It seems that once she had learned that Jesus was going to be the guest of Simon... She made her way in and she positioned herself right behind him where his feet were and waiting for that perfect moment to anoint him. Typically, you would anoint their head. But here she is, they're 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 eating, she's watching, right? And the conversation is going on and on and on. She finds herself behind right as her feet with that, that, that perfume right on her neck, right? That's where they would they would carry it. And she's waiting for that time where she could eventually come and anoint his head. Maybe when it was a break, maybe when it was finished. But what we see here as we're reading this story is while she's waiting for that perfect moment to anoint him, she was so moved by emotion and into action. Noticing that her tears were flowing down. Now this is the woman. She's noticing that her tears are flowing down. You see Luke writes this. You might see this in, the, in, your, in, in your pages there. It says it wet her feet. That Greek word wet that phrase actually means like rain. This was not a dribbling or a small bit of tears. But this woman is sobbing. And what she's finding because of her close proximity to Jesus and his feet. Is that her tears are falling on to his feet. So, what she does, she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Then she took that expensive perfume, broke its container, and began to pour it on the feet of Jesus and began to kiss his feet. Now, let me ask you <clears throat> how do you respond? when confronted with a social outcast, or a known immoral person, or someone considered a social outcast? I don't mean to be rude, but you might think of a time when you're sitting outside at a restaurant, right over here, maybe just right across the street. And how do you respond when someone who is dirty and smelly interrupts your family meal or meal with a friend and asks if you can buy them a meal or if you can give them money. You don't really want them nearby, do you? We live in a day and age where it's cancer culture. If, if you are cancel culture, where, where if you just think different than them, they, they don't want you around and we're going to push them out. So you can imagine this, this, is, a, this is an awkward moment, very uh, socially awkward. You can imagine the reaction of the crowd at this strange sight. Jewish women required or were required to wear their hair up in public. And by letting down her hair in public, she was doing a shameful act. And even it was actually a, a, a grounds of divorce. A man could divorce his wife if her hair were to be uh, uh, let down in public, it was ground for divorce. Theologian Daryl Block writes that everything about her action, everything that this woman was doing is offensive, is offensive, except for the attitude that fed it. Her actions reflect a great cost. They reflected a great care and a great emotion. It would have cost as much as 300 denarii or about a year's salary along with the social capital it costs to humble herself in front of these men. She would have known very well what the people thought of her as the town prostitute. It definitely was an awkward moment as she treated Jesus with a familiarity. And here's the issue. She's treating Jesus with a familiarity that would make others very uncomfortable due to her profession. Yet Jesus, as we're reading this in Luke, doesn't seem to mind or care. Instead, he accepts the emotional outburst of their actions without complaint, without amazement or argument. He doesn't pull his feet in. He doesn't say, oh, well, excuse me. What, what are you doing? Who are you? He accepts it. He allows it to happen. <clears throat> However, Simon the Pharisee, the host, he didn't respond so positively as Jesus did. Look with me at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's, he's thinking in his head, if this man, speaking of Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. You can hear the sarcasm. You can hear just the rancor coming through. It's just dripping, dripping with rejection and an attitude adjustment or an attitude or evaluation. Walter Leithfield notes that Simon makes three wrong assumptions about Jesus and the woman. You'll see them here. He assumes that if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who and what this woman was. If you're a prophet, you would know that she's a woman of the city, that she is a sinner, that she is unclean, that she is not someone to be touched or allowed to touch you. He assumes that if he did know, if you are a prophet, and you did know then, then you would not let her touch him. Jesus, if you're a prophet, you don't know what this woman does. You wouldn't let it happen. And thirdly, as you see up there in the notes since he does allow her to touch him, since he does allow her to express her emotion, her love and devotion, he is therefore not a prophet and he should not be acknowledged as one. Probably the reason why Pharaoh Simon invited him in the first place is because his friends and his colleagues refuse to believe that Jesus is a prophet. They want to reject him. Maybe Simon had a good thought and said, well, let me see for myself. But he also could be just like the rest of them. He's just testing Jesus. And in this, it seems like Jesus fails in in the eyes of Simon. Yet we shall see that Jesus does know her. He does accept her as she is. And he is a prophet. As we continue in verse 40. And Jesus answering Simon said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Knowing what is in Simon's heart, Jesus demonstrates that he is a prophet. He knows what's in Simon's heart. He knows what he is thinking. He demonstrates that he is a prophet and he turns towards him. First, he's probably looking at the woman, but then he turns to Simon He says, Simon, I got something to say to you. And Simon replies with respect by calling him teacher. But yet the way he says, say it, could almost be derogative. A moment will say, oh, whatever. Verse 41, Jesus tells him a parable. This is where Jesus is ready to insert the gospel. He's looking for those moments. And this is a opportune time. Verse 41, Jesus tells the parable. A certain money letter had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, as you see, both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them, Jesus asked the question, now which of them will love him more? Now, excuse me, I just got something in my throat here. Now, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual truth a spiritual or an earthly story that illustrates a spiritual truth. And Jesus is now going to use this awkward moment to proclaim the gospel to this dismissive host. Now, a denarii, as we think of this parable, I've I've kind of shared it with you before. A denarii was equal to a whole day's pay. That's what someone would get. A, A regular hired hand would get a denarii for working all day. So the first debtor, owes 500 days of his wages to this creditor. The other owes 50 whole days to his wages. Now, to put that in perspective, consider the wages here in Orange County. If we take the median uh, uh, salary of Orange County, now you're probably gonna laugh at this. It, it may, dis- it may uh, discourage some of you, but the median salary here in Orange County is $95,934 a year. That's $369 a day. 500 days, that would equal to $184,500. For 50 days, $18,450. Could you imagine owing $184,000 without a home? This is just a non-credited thing. This is not a mortgage. Just owing this type of money. What's that? Yeah, or go to college, yes. Now you say, well, wait a second. Let's look at more realistically. Minimum salary here in Orange County is $13. For 500 days, that's 2,000. For 50 days, that's, or 52,000, I should say. And for 50 days, 5,200. So I share all that to say, this is a immense sum. Could you imagine owing someone 500 days of your pay? I mean, all of it. Not that you get to take some home to get fed. No, I got to give you 500. How would anyone pay that off over time? You, You really couldn't. They could not pay. In any case, it's clear that the debt is high and overwhelming to the debtor and that the lender would not want to give up that money easily. It would come at a high cost to him. Yet in this parable that Jesus is telling here, the creditor willingly and graciously forgives both debts. The question of who will love him more is really a no-brainer, as everyone should recognize that the person in a higher debt would be more grateful. Why? Because he had a higher debt. Luke tells us in verse 43 that Simon even gets it. So he's not that dim. He answers correctly in verse 43. Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says uh, to him, you have judged rightly. Yet Jesus is not done <clears throat> evangelizing Simon. Still addressing Simon, Jesus turns around and once again looks upon the woman in verse 44. So now he turns from Simon and he looks again at the woman. And what is the woman doing? Continually weeping and cleaning Jesus' feet. Verse 41. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. verse 45, you gave me no kiss, no greeting, but from the time I've come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, Are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus turns his focus back on the woman to drive home his point that's in the parable. Simon looks upon this woman and he sees her as a sinful intruder, but Jesus sees her as a friend. Simon Caesar is a sinful intruder, not worthy of respect or consideration. While well, Jesus Caesar is a friend who is worthy of the kingdom of God. This is a great example of his proclamation that we saw last week earlier when he said, Among the boor- those born of woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than than he. This woman is greater than John the Baptist in the eyes of Christ. Why? Because she is a participant. She is a citizen. She is of the kingdom of God. She is a child of God. Now the contrast between the woman and the host towards Jesus couldn't have been clearer. She is performing an act of devotion that emanates from her love for Jesus. She loved much Uh, Jesus says, she recognizes the immense debt that had piled up over the years from her sinful choices. She recognized that she was sinner. She understood the debt that was against her and she was grateful for the forgiveness of her sins. Luke records her actions with the words kept and not ceased. In other words, indicating that she's continually was at Jesus' feet, kissing and wiping them. She is showing humility by using her own perfume, her own tears and hair to anoint Jesus' feet. Simon, though, he's neglecting his role as a host. And this is a glaring oversight in those days. Washing a guest's feet was an essential formality, especially coming in for a banquet, for a meal. And not to offer the guest water for the washing of his feet was tantamount to an insult. He was flippant towards Jesus. He showed no respect to Jesus himself. Jesus, though, desires to change Simon's worldview. And that's important. Instead of condemning Simon, though he does in in maybe a passive-aggressive way here, he doesn't just get up and say, let's go. I don't want anything to do with you. And this is important especially in this day of age when we have so much division politically, culturally, socially, economically. He desires to change Simon's worldview. He wants Simon to understand the kingdom of God and its values. He's not writing Simon off. He's going to introduce to him here the kingdom of God and he invites him. He's inviting him to also to have his debt, to recognize his debt and to have it forgiven. He wants him to understand who God is and who Jesus is. Again, in verse 48, as we continue, Jesus demonstrated his identity as the Messiah and the anointed one of God. And the son of God, when he said to her in verse 48, to the woman, he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Now we've already seen this before. Then those who were at the table, verse 49, with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who can even forgive sins? Who is he that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. But look at verse 50. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Underline that. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Underline it, highlight it, circle it. You ought to make this a screensaver if we still do those. You need this as the, uh, uh, in your Twitter feed and in your Facebook. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For Jesus said the exact words that this woman needed to hear. What a wonderful, life-changing statement. Four simple words that transform her life completely. The Apostle Paul captures this truth when he writes in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us, you'll see it here in the monitor, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Boy, this is so important. Memorize this verse. See, when you were born, you were put into the kingdom of darkness. Hold that up for just a little bit for me, Ben. You have been put into the domain of darkness. We are born into that domain. And that is what we will remain until Christ comes and pulls us up. And that's the glory of salvation is that God transfers us or transfers us from that kingdom to the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. And I pray that that's your testimony today. Luke now focuses on the other guests as they respond negatively and critically to Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness. Now the Pharisees were legalists and self-righteous and they served as an adversary to the ministry of Jesus his whole three and a half years or so. They had grumbled against him in chapter 5 of Luke and they considered Jesus a blasphemer because he claimed to be able to forgive sins. They recognized that Jesus is claiming to have the authority of God. Yet their response meant nothing to the woman. She was used to their critical and condemning attitudes towards her. She was immune to their hateful and spiteful reaction to Jesus as he gives her peace, the harmony, the salome that she so desperately needed and desired. Now, by including this event, this narrative in the gospel, now you have to think about it. John tells us that if the works of Jesus were written down, he supposes that no library, no volume of books could ever contain all that Jesus did. But this story of this woman, unnamed, she's just known as a city of a woman, or the city, a, city, a woman of the city, and as a sinful. Her name is never given. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit believed that this narrative needed to be in here. And I believe it's only in Luke, this one. There's, there's two incidents as this happens. This is not the same as the woman who comes and anoints Jesus for his burial later in his ministry. <clears throat> but by including this event in the gospel, Luke paints a beautiful, wonderful word picture of how you and I can evangelize and introduce our family and our friends and others in our sphere of influence to the kingdom of God. Now, hospitality, as we have emphasized over the last three, four, five years, is one great way. Now, obviously, that gift of hospitality, of inviting others over to your home to break bed, is now something that's not considered much hospitality any longer, but I believe that we need to recapture it once again. (coughs) Excuse me. But the one that's pictured today is not only of hospitality, but it is the power and testimony. Listen to this. The way that Jesus is is evangelizing here is through the power and testimony of a transformed life. That's how Jesus is sharing the gospel. This is how he's introducing to Simon the kingdom of God. This is how he's trying to change Simon's worldview by saying, look at the power and the transforming life of this woman. Yes, she was a woman of the city. Yes, she was a sinner, but now she is forgiven and given peace. This woman is considered by all as a sinful, immoral woman. She was not deserving to be invited as a guest. She was an unwelcome attender and an intruder who should have kept to the shadows of the walls. Yet they truly did not know this woman. Though it's not indicated by Luke, somewhere, somehow this woman of the city, this sinner, somehow, somewhere had heard the gospel. Maybe she saw Jesus healing. Maybe she heard him preaching or seeing the effect he had on a friend there in the village. But in some unknown time and place, she had responded to Jesus' call to repent and to follow him. And her faith led to forgiveness that led to love that led to peace. Let me say it again. Her faith led to a forgiveness that led to love that led her to a life of of peace. What we are seeing in her reaction to Jesus and her forgiveness is a woman that has been redeemed. No longer considered a sinner, but a saint, a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And let me say that is the same for you today if you truly have repented and come to Christ. One of the greatest tools in evangelism is the power and testimony of a transformed life. And Jesus uses this transformed life of an immoral woman as a testimony to witness to Simon. Pastor John MacArthur notes, I put it here on the monitor for you. He says, in an act of irony, Jesus reaches out to demonstrate his power to forgive sins to a hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisee by using the very person that the Pharisee despised the most. The lowlife, reprobate, wretched, immoral prostitute whose transformation was very clear and inarguable. We also find in this passage that simple formula that I give you all the time of the precept, principle, and person that's so common in Scripture. You've heard it before. The Bible gives us a you shall, you shall not. That's the precept. But as you and I know, anytime someone, we tell our children to do something, we ask with why. Why should I not steal? Why should I not have adultery? Why should I not covet? The Bible tells us why. And then it tells us the why is always found in the person of Christ in one of the attributes and the characters of Christ. So in this case, as you look here on the monitor, I'm going to consider it backwards. For what we see is that the person is that of Jesus, the Son of God. He has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. And so that's the picture that Luke is given. One who can say, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. That person gives us the principle is that great love comes from great forgiveness. That's truly where love comes is from forgiveness. The precept, the thou shalt, the thou shalt not. The thing that you and I ought to understand that we ought to do is what the woman was doing here. Is their great forgiveness leads us to worship God in humility and gratefulness. Hold that up just for a second if you would, Ben. This is important for us to understand that he's given us this not in a precept principle and person way that we normally see in, say, Exodus Leviticus. But you and I are seeing it in the picture of this woman as she comes and begins to wet his feet, rain down tears, driven by emotion, finding Jesus, positioning herself right behind him, and begin to show and to show her devotion and love to him. This is what we see. This is what you and I are called to do. The question and I challenge that I have for us this morning from this passage is do you exhibit this type of love and gratefulness in your life? The fact that Christ has paid your debt, that you are forgiven, that he has called you to walk in peace. Do you seek to share the gospel through the power of your own transformed life? I once was, but now am. We sing it all the time, just as I am. I once was blind, now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. Our lives, mark this, here's the challenge. Our lives should be marked by gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And a love that leads us to faith and a willingness to sacrifice all that we have to worship Him. And is that how you are coming this morning? Or did you come reluctantly, knowing that I was going to call you or come to your house or ask you where you've been? Are you coming as the woman seeking just to be in the shadows, not because you can sing or that you can play the guitar or be part of a team or be in leadership? but just so you can sit and hear the word of God and see Jesus? Are you here because you want others to know, hey, I was someone that was different. Let me tell you what Christ has done in my heart. Or are you here just because you were invited and subduty? I'm telling you that God has called us to something much greater. Your sins are are forgiven, go in peace. Unfortunately, I don't think that we always have the spirit of the woman. I think many times we have the spirit and the attitude of Simon. Now that's between you and the spirit. And so that's what I want to challenge this moment. We're going to be quick here. We won't, I won't take you much longer. This is something that's important for you to understand. So I want to share with you the reason why you and I do not respond as the woman does, because two things. We do not respond in such a way with gratitude and love and devotion and worship is number one is because we do not consider the weight and measure of our sin we do not consider the weight and measure of our sin. Like Adam and Eve from the beginning, we try to hide our sin. We try to deny its existence, we blame it on others. We, we redefine sin to be just a bad habit or a, a struggle or a nagging problem that we need uh, just need self-correction, maybe more therapy. However, sin... Listen to this. Sin is an absolute moral failure. And a sinner is one who violates God's will or law. Wayne Grumman writes, and this is a definition that I use most, uh, mostly, is that sin is our failure, failure to conform to God's moral law. Where do we find his moral law? We find it in Scripture, in the Ten Commandments. We find it in the rest of his his words. But the Ten Commandments really hold all of God's moral law for us. And what it is, it's our failure to conform to that law in our minds, in our hearts, and in our nature. Again, you and I understand our actions. We do things. We try to behavior modify them. But yet we still have in our hearts, we do them. But then we recognize this because our nature so you and I are guilty of sin. The apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Looking here at this verse. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses of sin. Who is he writing to? Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. He's writing to those that profess Christ. He says, listen to this. You were dead in the trespasses of sin in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were just doing what the world does, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan, the adversary of God, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, Simon wants to think that he's better. In essence, he is not. He is just as this woman, a sinful, immoral creature deserving of God's wrath. Think of that song we just sung a little bit. It was my sin that held him there. I hear my mocking voice with those who mocked Jesus. I believe there's probably many of you that as you watch the passion of Christ or consider the things of Easter, that you believe that you would not be one of those ones that would say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But if we were honest and truthful, we would. We would join the throng. That's what he says here. We follow the passions of the world. The penalty of our sin is death. It is the final resting places, and the final resting place is the lake of fire that will never be quenched. The debt of our sin against God is so vast, is so heavy, is so big, is that there is nothing that you and I could ever do to appease God or pay it off. Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are awaiting that final judgment we are warned that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And left to our own devices, we are without excuse, unable to rectify our situation and our relationship to God. Now, some of you here this morning might be guilty of this very problem. You profess Christ. But still, you are living lives that are marked by habitual sin. Yes, we will fight sin our whole lives. That is part of the sanctification process. But never, never do we make friends with our sin. Some of you, you are not a testimony because there is no transformed life, there is no power of God evidenced in your life and in your actions and your nature. Woe be to you, Lord, Lord. He says, I never knew you, depart. So I want to challenge you, does your life, is it show the power of a transformed life? Would you be a good witnessing tool for Christ to share with others? Or are you here this morning, you've never heard of this dilemma? Let me share with you, my friend, that you do not need behavior modification. You don't need more therapy or religious rituals. You need Christ to pay that debt that you rightly owe. Like the debtors in the parable, your debt cannot be paid. It can only be forgiven. So many times we do not consider the way to measure of our sin. So we are not grateful. We are not uh, worshiping with devotion. The second reason why we do not do so is because we do not consider the depths of God's love. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. We do not consider the depths of God's love. Now, now think of this, because I don't think we have thought of this very well, especially in the United States. This will become clear in a moment. One important fact that you and I must understand about debt and debt forgiveness is that the debt may be forgiven, but the debt still remains. The government can say, we will forgive everyone's student loans. And I would jump up and say, well, kind of yay. I had a student loan. That would have been nice. But that debt is still there on the papers. It's just moved to someone else. Someone must pay that debt. And as we're talking about the government, right? Who's going to pay you, the government's debts? It's you and I. It's not just the U.S. government that has trillions in debt. It's you and I, it's your children, it's your grandchildren. And see, here's the thing, is you and I don't consider that. The Debt must be paid. The debt does not go away. It is standing there. It must be taken care of. In the parable, the lender assumes the debt and incurs the loss. Just as an illustration, Don and I many times have been in debt and had it forgiven just recently some some hospital insurance bills. That debt didn't go away, maybe for you and I, but someone had to incur that debt. They had to write it off. They have to swallow it. They have to put it somewhere else. And that makes us gracious and grateful, right? The debt is transferred to the forgiver. So in our, our parable here, who had to pay the debt? The one who loaned the money. He has lost the 500 days of wages. He has lost the 50 days of wages. He must now reach to his, his, his wife, his partners, and say that we are going to eat it, so to speak. In our case, that sin, that debt, is paid by the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? See, God couldn't just take it and wipe it away. What, how, what just God would that be? No, someone had to pay that debt that stood against us. Colossians chapter three, and Jesus nailed him, was nailed to the cross, canceling the debt of, 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 that was, uh, occurred to us. I, I can't remember that phrase now. Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Look at these other two verses that are up here on the monitors. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, what? Say it. Christ died for us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. He did not come and, and forgive us after we had made some attempt. Not when we cleared some level of debt forgiveness or debt payment. No, he he forgave it all. He comes to us. What we learn is this. God is rich in mercy and can forgive even the deepest of debts. Your sin is not too uh, big for God to forgive. His mercy is rich. Rich. It is vast. Number two, Jesus willingly takes upon himself the debt that is owed to God. God the Father says, Son, would you take this debt and pay for this? Jesus willingly, graciously does so. Number three, Jesus will receive the worst of sinners. Now, if someone were coming to you and say, Can you, would you graciously, you have some money, would you pay the debt of some people? I would say, oh, okay. Uh, I would find the people that had the least debt, right? I'll forgive the guy that owes ten dollars. I'll forgive the guy that owes twenty dollars, maybe thirty dollars. I'll go deep. How about a hundred? But I forgive the one that owes a hundred thousand, a million, a hundred million. Jesus doesn't care how big your debt. He doesn't care if you're a woman of the city. He doesn't care if you are a sinner. God will receive the worst of sinners. What did Paul say? I was the chiefest of sinners. Think of the Apostle Paul Talk about the power of a transformed life. He sought to kill Christians, to persecute them. And Jesus met him on the road. Paul wasn't seeking Jesus. Number four, the Holy Spirit will transform our lives. If you truly have accepted Christ, your life will be marked by transformation. She loved much. Your heart will fill with love and overwhelming love because your faith and trust in God. And lastly, we are to respond with grateful hearts full of love and worship. Say you this morning, we like to take God's forgiveness, but we'd like to end it there. It ought to move us to compassion, to awkward emotional outburst, a devotion and worship. This is a wonderful Valentine's story. This is Valentine's, uh, this is the greatest Valentine gift ever given. It's providential that we're talking about this on Valentine's Day. I would never think of this as a Valentine's story. But yet as the more I explored this and last night I said, wait a second, what I'm looking here is a wonderful love story of a woman who is forgiven the greatest of our sins. and we hear the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Those are the words of Jesus to you, my friend. What does it move you to? What does it lead you to? All of these wonders of truth are not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because of God's kindness. God's kindness in forgiving our debts leads us to repentance, to, to recognize, hey, I, did, I got really deep. I am so thankful. I need to turn to Christ. Not only does God's kindness and forgiving our deaths lead us to repentance and a life, but a life of repentance is reflected through loving and serving God. This is the power of a transformed life. And it is displayed in our passage today. She had repented. It moved her to devotion. Neil C. Stewart tweeted out this week, if you could look at your monitors very quickly. And this is so important. What great words. What a timely word for me as I was going through this passage this week. He tweeted, when God wipes a sinner's slate clean, that's you and I, that soul is scarred with a merciful disposition towards others for the rest of their earthly lives. And oh, what a beautiful scar. That is That is a scar worth showing and not hiding. It's a wonderful, merciful disposition towards others. A Christian's life is marked by gratitude. In 1 John 4:19, "We love because he first loved us, and that love leads us to follow the words of John the Baptist that was found in Matthew chapter 3:8. "Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." The woman in our passage, and I'm ending this morning right now, the woman in our passage this morning did just that as the fruits of her repentance were displayed through an emotional outburst that led her to demonstrate her love and gratefulness to Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and Randy to be ready. As we just take a moment, every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to take a moment to pause before we go on to our busy afternoon and we leave here this morning. And I want you to consider very quickly what we shared today. I want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how am I to respond to your word this morning? Am I a Simon or am I a woman of a city? Am I the one that's forgiven? Am I the one that has has peace if so then demonstrate the power of a transformed life by mercifully devoting your life not only to christ loving god but also by loving others if your assignment here this morning if you're critical you're judging you're self-righteous would you come and repent for christ receives the worst of sinners we invite you this morning to share that with us I'd like to close this morning with the exhortation of John MacArthur. You can go ahead and look up. I'd like to close this morning with the exhortation of John MacArthur in his preaching uh, of this passage. I thought this was so powerful. I, I, I didn't need to recreate a wheel. But he ended his sermon with this. What is the level of, what level is your love for God and your love for Christ. Does this seem so bizarre, this this narrative, seems so bizarre to you that you can never fathom doing this yourself? Have you come to Christ in faith and embraced him and embraced this powerful and total transformation of forgiveness so that you are literally filled with joy and gratitude and love? We should be marked by that. It is that profuse love for Christ that is the single great proof visible to people of the power of the gospel. An ungrateful, unloving, or loveless Christian undercuts the testimony of the gospel. Let us put on display our gratitude, our lavish love to our Christ, and the world will take note that our sins have truly been forgiven. May God make us sufficient for such things. Randy? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message.